Spencer Balper and the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is very frequently on this podcast, uh, no less often than once a week, of course. Uh, in this particular case, we do have him on for a specific reason, uh, which is uh, which is this. Uh, minutes uh, minutes before I recorded this introduction, minutes before I began recording this introduction, posted the results of the uh, contract crowdsourcing project uh, that uh, we facilitated at Fangraphs in which Fangraphs readers uh, responded estimating the years and the, um, the average annual values in dollars that uh, free agents would be receiving. I've just now posted the uh, top 47 free agents by that method. And those results are there. Last night, uh, so I did this on Tuesday, last night, Monday night, um, Dave Cameron and I discussed the results, and that conversation which follows is almost precisely the conversation uh, that we had. Of course, uh, with all the um, swears taken out. Dave Cameron's swears. His filthy mouth. <laughs> but uh, other than that, it's exactly the same. So let's get to that. It's uh, it's Fangrass Audio. It features manager getter Dave Cameron discussing... The results of the contract crowdsourcing project facilitated fingers, and it begins right now. Yeah, hi. Hey. Were you expecting it? Was I expecting it? Expecting the call. Yes, I was. Yes, we scheduled it. Yes. Okay. Right. I, I hit publish five minutes before this so that I could record a podcast. Yeah, there you go. Well, so we're just dealing in this particular edition with the results of the crowdsourcing, the contract crowdsourcing for free agents. Right. So People turning in wanting to hear about the World Series and that minor event that's happening in October. Uh, sorry, we're not talking about that today. What's the, wait, what's the minor event that's happening? Oh, you're, you're, the, the World Series. You're talking about the World Series, right? Okay. Yeah, right. okay. Uh, that was yeah. a descriptive, a descriptive sentence. Yeah, and a positive. It wasn't a. It was. A, it was a, right. a, a phrase in apposition. Sure. Right. So, yes. uh, but we're talking about the free agent results, which I believe, as of the time that this podcast is being published, um, will have, they they themselves will have been published. The results. Right. We're going to time this, that the uh, podcast and the, the results go up at a similar time so that people reading the list can say, hey, I wonder what Cameron and Sestouli think about this list I'm reading. I want to listen to them talk while I read it. Yeah, I don't know if necessarily if they care what I think. Um, they, they, they can know that I uh, crafted it lovingly uh, on my own computer, so that's a feeling they can have about it. Um, so this is like a, a local organic product. It is, yeah, it's artisanally artisanally crafted right. free agent right. free agent list, and uh, it should be said uh, by virtue of the contributions of uh, many of our readers. Um, right, this is actually their free agent list. Yeah, right. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, now, listen. Have you looked at it at all? I have looked at the spreadsheet you sent me. Yeah. Uh, I have not looked at the post because at the time we were talking, I don't think it's actually been written. No, no, it hasn't. Um, I sent you the right. spreadsheet with all but three of the contracts, and those were the the three that went up uh, today, Monday, uh, to be crowdsourced. Yes, right. Um, and I don't think we're going to spend much time talking about those three, right? Uh, right. No, probably not. Except for the fact that uh, Ed- Edward Mujica. Mujica, yeah. Mujica. Edward Mujica, um, despite – 
uh, some pretty excellent peripherals, I believe, ended up with a zero war, which was su- uh, surprising to me. Well, his peripherals weren't excellent. They were okay. Uh, you know, he doesn't walk anyone, and he gets an average amount of strikeouts, and he gives up some home runs. Oh, yeah. So, true, I mean, yeah. he has, like, one skill. He just throws the ball in the strike zone. And, I mean, he doesn't even – he throws one pitch, and Yadier Molina blocks it every single time, and hitters occasionally chase it. Uh, but he never walks anyone and is occasionally hittable. Oh, you're right. But the thing that – the, the the thing that's weird is that he doesn't walk anyone, and also he throws. Was it? A, it's like a split change all the time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. he throws like ninety five percent of the time. Yeah, right. And it, that's strange because this is a ball that um, is designed to get swings and misses. One uh, one might assume not not that he does right. that a ton, but um, uh, but you would think that it was it was it would be spending some time outside of the zone is the idea. Yeah, I think it's one of these interesting things, and, you know, not that we want to spend our entire podcast on free agents uh, talking about Edward Mujica, but I think, you know, Koji Uehara throws a similar kind of out pitch. Uh, there's actually a decent amount of relievers who throw this kind of splitter changeup, and they all seem to have pretty low walk rates. Like, this is kind of an interesting uh, effect of, you know, a, a lot of, like, hard-throwing slider uh, relievers tend to, to miss the zone a decent amount. Obviously, Carlos Marmol is like the picture of that, of like breaking balls going everywhere. But these pitchers who rely on splitters or change-ups as their kind of swing and miss out pitch tend to have very low walk rates and, and are either able to get more swings uh, or to get more um, hitters to, to chase those pitches uh, and, and not make contact and not foul them off. Whatever it is, there's some combination of, of that pitch that allows a, a pitcher to um, kind of be more efficient than if he's just throwing wild sliders in the dirt. Yeah, right. And, and of course, if you're getting swings and misses, it's, it's harder not to walk people sometimes because uh, you're not drawing as much contact and therefore the count stays alive and that's a necessary condition to walk people is that you get right, exactly. four balls. You, you, are, you opt out of walks because you're opting into strikeouts. Right, right. Um, okay, yeah. Well, we don't have to talk about Mijica the whole time, but I, I was surprised to find that he had – Produced, even though we know relievers don't uh, typically produce a lot in the way of wins um, above replacement, they uh, he had zero of them, zero point zero, in fact. So, yeah, um, right. His area was good, but he he gave up some homers, which hurt his FIP. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there you are. And uh, yeah, uh, did you have any immediate reactions to the list that I that I sent you, and which has now well, been published? Yeah, I mean, you know, we did two different sets of questions, right? The what do people think they're going to get and what do people think like they would pay if they were in charge. And I think the thing that I was most struck by is the extraordinarily low numbers that people say they would give out to free agents if they were in charge. I mean, like shockingly low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think the the total, I mean, I've, uh, you know, summed, uh, rounded some of these numbers in my spreadsheet, so perhaps they're going to look slightly different in the post. But the total number... For Robinson Cano, easily the pre- premium free agent of the winner, uh, one of the better free agents to hit the market in several years. Um, the crowd, I believe, said that they would give him $131 million, slightly more than Josh Hamilton got last year. Uh, Robinson Cano, way better than Josh Hamilton. That's less than Zach Granke got uh, last year. This is $131 million is uh, probably – at least 50 million shy of what he's actually going to get. Maybe more like 100 million shy. Uh, that is a very conservative figure for one of the best players in the game. And that trend really follows all the way through. I think the numbers that the, the crowd says they would give to free agents are just too conservative. 
Right. And so now you say, uh, and I guess that's fair. Um, I guess Josh Hamilton, besides one totally banana season, is ba- was basically like a four-win player in other seasons. Um, is that is that fair to say? I mean, before yeah, I, mean, I think even including his banana season, his overall average was that it was about a four-win player when he stayed healthy and he had some health risks. Okay, right. And we expect uh, Cano, who, who, yeah, to, to be fair, has recorded, what, at least like uh, 600 plate appearances. It looks like seven seasons or something like that. Uh, eight seasons, maybe. Uh, so he's, Cano is super durable and uh, probably more of a six-win player. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So we can we can say that. Um, now, a curious thing about that, actually, I, I was going to touch on this anyway, was I noticed that, and if you average it out, um, if you, we look at the, I, I call them the the real. What do you think that he will really be offered this player? And what? Uh, yeah. And then the other one was the fake. Uh, in a fake world, uh, where you're a person of right. authority for a major league baseball team, um, what would you offer him? The it, the average annual values were closer. The, the average annual values right. for the fake measurements were about 90% of the, the AAVs for the, the for the real measurements. The years, though, uh, were right. much more like 75 to 80%. Right. Uh, and so it seems like, and this is the case with the Cano projection, um, the, the crowd projects, they say they'll pay Robinson Cano uh, $24 million yeah. per year. And they say they'll, and they said, um, that was the fake. The real was twenty four point five. So it's just five hundred thousand dollars a year, really. This is not that big a difference. Um, right. But the years are two. It's two. It's two years apart, and that's and that makes up the bulk of the difference right. uh, for the fake versus real projections. Right. And I think what we've seen is that uh, annual average value for the top end free agents hasn't really inflated that much over the years. I mean, a few years ago when Roger Clemens signed a one year deal with the Yankees, he got twenty seven million dollars. Uh, I think right now the only player in baseball getting $27 million is Alex Rodriguez. Uh, Justin Verlander is, I think, going to get something close to that based on his new extension um, in a couple of years. But, I mean, that's basically the the mid-$20 million range, uh, you know, kind of pushing towards $30 million but not quite getting there. It's still kind of the upper ceiling for what any player makes in, in a single season. Uh, but the deals have gotten exponentially longer. So we've gone from it used to be five or six or seven-year deals to nine, ten, eleven uh, 12 years in Joey Votto's case, where they gave him a 10-year extension to, uh, when he already had two years left on his contract. Uh, so we've seen that, that teams and, and, and players are deciding not to inflate AAV nearly as much as they're inflating years. Uh, it seems like the, the crowd is, is a kind of against that and wants to uh, pull way back on the amount of years that they would give to free agents because they're afraid of uh, – kind of the albatross seasons at the end when you're paying a ton of money to a guy who's in his age 38 or 39 season. Um, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that that albatross season isn't as bad as people think. I mean, you know, certainly you don't want to be paying $30 million a year to a useless player, but if you're saving $30 million in the first couple of years of the contract by uh, drastically underpaying a six-win player – uh, you know, it all comes out in the wash, and I think people should be less scared of albatross seasons at the end and more concerned with getting the overall number right for the whole contract. Yeah, I would submit that uh, the albatross season feels terrible. Um, you know, it, it does absolutely. Know, for, yeah. for like so, not not to say that the Phillies have spent their money correctly necessarily, right. but when you have a black hole, or I mean, you know, you take it with Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez was quite good at the beginning of his contract with the Yankees, um, but. You know, now it seems miserable. But I guess the point that you would make, 
uh, is that you're not going to get Alex Rodriguez for um, you're not going to get him for for fewer years and, and fewer dollars than you than the amount for which you signed. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, when I look at the back end years of a deal that very clearly look like they're going to be atrocious, uh, the the question is not how many years did I just sign up for that are going to be significant negative value, and am I willing to take on that negative value? The question is, how much value am I getting up front, and is the trade-off worth it? For me, this is no different, really, than trading prospects for a rental, uh, you know, a kind of a short-term rental, where you say, am I willing to give up three or four premium blue-chip guys for a guy that I control for a year or two or three years, because you're expecting to get significant value in the next two or three years, and you know that you're losing that trade as soon as that player becomes a free agent and leaves or you have to give him some monstrous contract to keep him and when those prospects would be turning into, you know, really valuable cost-controlled players. Um, you know, I think there are certainly times when trading prospects for, for rentals makes sense, and there's times when it doesn't, and you have to balance the, that kind of decision on what kind of short-term value are you getting and does it make sense to justify the long-term cost that you're giving up. Uh, people seem to have not as much a problem trading prospects for veterans as they do giving long-term deals uh, that are going to turn into albatrosses, when in reality they're kind of the same thing. Okay, uh, here's somewhat along the lines of this sort of relationship between the fake uh, crowdsource projections and, and the real ones, right? The fake ones, again, being uh, if the uh, respondent, him or herself, were actually a GM, the real ones being what, what, that, what that respondent thinks the player will actually get. Uh, Hiroki Kuroda. Yeah. His yeah. his fake projection uh, um, was closest to his actual projection. Twenty two point three fake, twenty three point five real. The years are actually the same. Uh, the dollars are just uh, five hundred thousand dollars apart. Uh, what do you think um, it is about Hiroki Kuroda, for example, that that might make him uh, that might that might uh, he might be received by the, by our readers in this way? Well, I think with older players like Corotta or A.J. Burnett, uh, some of these guys were kind of at the end of their career. There's not a lot of variation for people to to widely uh, diverge from the norm because you're just not going to get, uh, you know, five- or six-year deals for these kind of pitchers. So you're basically saying, you know, the guy's 38, 39 years old, uh, or Corotta might be pushing 40 at this point. Uh, you know, I think you're you're looking at a one-year deal, maybe two if the market goes nutty. But even, you know, David Ortiz a couple of years ago when he hit free agency couldn't get a two-year deal and had to re-sign with the Red Sox uh, for just one year. Um, I think we've seen that the market really – uh, shies away from anything more than one or two year deals for players past the age of 35 or 36. Uh, so there's just not a lot of room for them to vary. And then with annual average value, you look at, you know, what Corota made last year, what the qualifying offer is. It's kind of a no-brainer for the Yankees to offer him a qualifying offer, which sets the minimum at one year of 14 million. So you can't really go below that. Uh, you know, because the, the Yankees will clearly make Corota the qualifying offer. Uh, he's not going to sign for less than the 14. So, you know, it basically sets a minimum in price, and there's a maximum in years, so you can't really diverge from the norm that much. Right. Now, in fact, to your point, um, and, and I know that you are a champion of the uh, of the damaged pitcher as a uh, yeah. uh, as a sort of um, a nice signing, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it seems as though generally the, the, the readership, the crowd, uh, feels similarly uh, in terms, again, of these relationships between total fake and uh, total real projections. Um, the f- the uh, five of the six players who um, finished most highly 
by that measure are all pitchers. Uh, Kuroda was number one, and then there's Josh Johnson, Gavin Floyd, Tim Hudson, Dan Heron. And I think that all four of those pitchers after Kuroda all have a wart of some sort, whether it's Johnson and Heron, who uh, there's you know some departure between their uh, you know their peripheral numbers, uh, and of course Hudson and Floyd are both dealing with their own injuries. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you know Fangraphs has been banging the drum fairly loudly for these kinds of pitchers over the last few years of being willing to take gambles on guys who look like their stuff is gone and you know they look very hittable, but in, in sometimes it's just you know a Babbitt or Homer or Flyball uh, anomaly that makes them look worse than they are. And I think we've you know shown with some conclusiveness that these kinds of pitchers can have more upside than maybe it's commonly. Uh, seen and these aren't a terrible place to take risks. So um, not totally shocking that the Fangraphs crowd, uh, which has been theoretically reading what we've been writing over the last few years, kind of likes these pitchers too. Now, uh, in terms of the, the player at the very other end of the spectrum, this is a player who was projected um, by the would-be GMs to receive uh, an eight million dollar contract, uh, but but these same respondents believe that he'll he'll get upwards of, he'll get about sixteen million. Uh, I, a little bit curious, I think it's it's Juan Uribe, um, who's uh, who, maybe there's uh, some suspicion about his actual true talent. Uh, perhaps there's a suspicion that there's some volatility attached to his talent, but also a third suspicion. There are three suspicions if you're counting at home. Uh, the third suspicion being that he'll be able to get money in the open market. Yeah, I think Uribe is going to be kind of fascinating because, you know, I think people have probably noticed that maybe Uribe put up the most uh, disparate war relative to what people might think he did this year. He was basically a part-time player for the Dodgers, wasn't ever really named the full-time third baseman. They even went and traded for Michael Young at the, in, in August to like bring in another option, even though Uribe was playing pretty well for them. Uh, I think uh, yeah, like 400 plate appearances and was still the 24th or 25th most valuable player in the game by war this season, uh, putting up like a, a comparable war to guys like Adrian Beltre. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you cannot project him to sustain a plus 25 UZR at third base like he put up this year. You have to regress that very heavily into the future. But at the same time, Juan Uribe is a former good defensive shortstop, uh, who has career long solid defensive numbers at third base. Uh, there's no reason to think that Juan Uribe is not a very good defensive third baseman. Um, if you can play up the middle for a, a, quite a long time at a pretty good position uh, or at a pretty good pace, and then you move to third base and, and your numbers are still good, um, it seems like the, this is a quality defensive player. And, you know, he actually hit pretty well this year. His, his offense has been up and down throughout his career, but he's got some power and he's learned how to take a walk uh, more recently. And, um, you know, I think overall, if you were looking for kind of a – uh, maybe a league average, uh, you know, useful fill-in player, you could do a lot worse than Juan Uribe. And, and for the crowd to say, you know, I think he's only worth $6 million on a one-year contract, uh, you know, I think that's probably out of line with what Juan Uribe is right now. now curiously with Juan Uribe, though, not to say – not to not with regard to his actual fielding ability, but just with regard to his physique, he does not necessarily yeah. look as though uh, he would be an excellent defender. He's a little bit – He's thick. a little bit, yeah. He's a little bit thick, yeah. but I guess he moves. Yeah. He, he's cat-like in his movements. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I think people maybe make too many assumptions about a player's defensive abilities based on his appearance. I mean, Pablo Sandoval looks like he should be the worst defensive third baseman in the history of time. Uh, that guy's basically a bowling ball at third base with legs. 
but he's really good over there. I mean, he's super athletic and makes plays you would never think he could make. Uh, you know, I think that there's a decent history of guys who um, might not look like they should be good defenders, but because of their reactions, because of their instincts, because of things that don't have to do with, you know, the size of your chest, uh, they're actually pretty decent defenders. And so, um, you know, Uribe might be the kind of guy who's underrated simply because of, you know, the way his uniform fits. Is uh, so with regard to, to specific positions and specifically pitcher here, um, is it is it the general consensus? Would you say because it is um, in terms of the crowdsourcing results that it, as far as uh, free agent pitchers are concerned, it's it's a little bit Matt Garza. Matt Garza is definitely like the, uh, one guy who's part of the first tier, and then it's uh, you know maybe you have four, five other guys in the next tier. Um, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. I think it's probably going to work out that way in terms of final contract because Garza is not going to have free agent compensation attached as he was traded in season. Uh, he's going to get a boost in that he will be the best pitcher that someone can sign this winter who doesn't cost a uh, first round pick. And so you're going to have teams that are very, um, uh, protective of those draft picks and those draft dollars who are going to be more interested in Garza and they're going to, uh, way, you know, kind of get into the bidding for him in, against pitchers they wouldn't with, who are, uh, you know, maybe similar quality but have draft pick compensation attached. But I think, you know, if you look at Garza and you look at Ricky Nolasco and you look at Irvin Santana, um, you know, even, even the injured pitchers like Josh Johnson, I don't think Garza is head and shoulders above these guys. Uh, his contract is going to end up being the biggest of them, but I don't think he's, uh, that great of a pitcher. I mean, I've never been a huge Matt Garza fan. I think he's a very solid innings eater, middle of the rotation guy. He's an above average starting pitcher, but not a great one. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think I'd want to give him $75 million. Uh, sort of at the other end of things is Roberto Hernandez, uh, yep. nay Fasto Camona, who, uh, is projected to receive $4.5 million. Uh, his, uh, in terms of his peripherals, he was actually, uh, quite good this year. Yeah, Hernandez is going to be a fascinating case because I think you're going to see uh, teams that value uh, walks and strikeouts and ground balls probably get in a little bit of a bidding war for a guy who was uh, by ERA atrocious uh, and got banished to the Rays bullpen. Uh, but I can see like a team like the Pirates being a absolutely perfect fit for Hernandez. He does the things that they value very highly. Uh, he's going to come at a very low cost because of his results, even though there will probably be a little bit of a minor bidding war of teams trying to get some value out of him. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at a guy who has, uh, you know, a good two-seam fastball that can get ground balls and, and started to learn how to miss bats a little bit this year and has decent enough command, his, his downfall was really a 20% homer to fly ball rate. There's no way you expect that to continue going forward. Uh, you regress that back even to something above average, say 13%. He's still a pretty decent starting pitcher. Uh, he's fair durable. I, I think there's going to be a, a number of teams, most of them sabermetrically inclined, who see Hernandez as perhaps the best value in free agency as a starting pitcher this winter, and I, I think you're going to see him get uh, a deal that's going to be roundly mocked by people who think that things like XFIP are stupid, and then he could very well be next year's Francisco Liriano. Now, is, is Josh Johnson going to be in, in somewhat the same situation, uh, just given the relationship between his peripherals, which were uh, pretty decent, and uh, his overall run prevention figures, which were not? Uh, is he going to be sort of in that same category, I, just maybe a higher higher price range? 
Yeah, I don't think so. I think the the reputation of Josh Johnson is still very strong, and people are going to look at this as 80 bad innings that he was uh, trying to pitch through an injury. Um, you know, I think they're going to say a healthy Josh Johnson is still one of the better pitchers in baseball. I don't think Johnson's going to be viewed as kind of one of these like you know sabermetric value type buys. He's going to be seen as a you know a short term uh, upside play, and I think every team that's interested in a you know acquiring a front of the rotation starter is going to be after him. Uh, and I think he might very well if he wants one, end up with a multi-year deal. I think the Blue Jays are probably going to make him the qualifying offer, which, again, sets the minimum price at one year and $14 million. Uh, and I think the bidding could, could go to two guaranteed years for someone who's uh, you know, willing to take a shot on his medicals. Um, not too much more here in the way of this, but I did, uh, alongside um, some of these forms, or within some of these forms for the, the crowdsourcing effort, um, ask some other questions that uh, might help to give an idea of how uh, the crowd is feeling about this or that player. Uh, some of them were of an irreverent nature. Uh, some of them weren't. Uh, what, are, what are the questions, though, uh, concern Nelson Cruz, um, mm-hmm. who's been sort of a tough player to evaluate um, over the course of his career? Because at first he was a, you know, for a while he was a quad A player, and then um, he sort of seemed to graduate to um, to something significantly better than that uh, insofar as he had power and began making enough contact, I suppose. Um, and then, uh, but then I guess over the last, what, three or f- three or four years, he's been, you know, maybe average. Um, but of course he also has a P- PED suspension uh, in his uh, very recent past. So uh, one of the questions uh, that I included in the form for Nelson Cruz was, uh, what do you think he's going to lose annually because of the PED suspension? Uh, the the the, uh, the result was about 4.8 million dollars per year, uh, and I guess I'm curious as to how that compares to the amounts that other players have lost or maybe seem to lost um, if they've also been uh, suspended as well, or if we have that sort of yeah. Day. Right. I mean, I'm looking at the spreadsheet. Uh, the crowd suggested that Cruz is going to sign for 10.6 million a year, right? So you add five million to that. And I think they're saying he would be a, you know, 15 or 16 million dollar per year player without the PED suspension. I, I don't think I agree with that. I think, uh, Nelson Cruz is a, an average flawed player who is probably more of a DH than an outfielder going forward. Uh, you know, it doesn't get on base a lot and, uh, has some serious power, but has also, you know, performed in Texas where, uh, you know, the ball flies and it's easy to look like a power hitter. So I think, uh, the idea that Nelson Cruz would have gotten 15 or 16 million a year as a free agent had he not been suspended, I don't buy into that. Well, uh, yeah, so okay, I think so, they, so the crowd does project him, they, they, if they are the GMs, they project him for, for less. But the question is, do you think that there's a team out there that, that will pay, uh, Nelson Cruz uh, maybe based off of, uh, you know, some of his other sort of, his, you know, his runs and RBI totals. No, I think Nelson Cruz is going to go back to the Rangers uh, on a short-term deal. I think he's going to be kind of Adam LaRoche this winter, and the Rangers are going to make him the qualifying offer, and everyone's going to look at themselves and say, do I want to give up a first-round pick or a you know, second-round pick, depending on which teams they are, uh, for the rights to sign uh, a guy who's on the decline, who's going to have to leave Texas, who might not be able to play the field that much longer, um, and, you know, has the steroids thing to go along with it. Uh, it's probably, you know, a short-term solution. You're not going to be giving Nelson Cruz a long-term deal. You can't sell him as part of your future. 
Uh, I just don't think there's going to be that many teams interested in giving up a pick to sign Nelson Cruz. So uh, I think he's going to go back to Texas on a one- or two-year deal. Uh, maybe two is more likely. Uh, or he might end up taking the qualifying offer, depending on uh, how aggressive his, his manager wants to or his agent wants to be, and maybe say, you know what, let's just go get you $14 million for next year and then play a full season without the suspension and then try and hit the market again next year. So you think he's going to get a qualifying offer? I think that it's very likely, yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Look at that. Dave Cameron has spoken. Uh, I, that's what I've been doing on this podcast, yes. <laughs> that's right. The whole time. Well, I think you can stop doing it. I think we've done a pretty good job of, uh, uh, you know, going through uh, some of the more notable cases here. Unless you think that uh, we've neglected any, uh, we can just end this. Well, I think there's one guy you haven't mentioned uh, who I think is maybe going to be the most interesting free agent of the offseason, and that's Tim Lincecum. Uh, and, you know, you don't know this, but at the uh, around the time of publication, I'm going to have a post going up uh, comparing Tim Lincecum and Dan Heron uh, because, you know, I think that there's a, a pretty large perception difference between the, these two, um, and that shows up in their uh, crowdsourced uh, expectations where the crowd expects Lincecum to get Three years at 13 million a year. Uh, he's already turned down a two-year deal from the Giants, um, and I think uh, Heron is expected to get uh, what, like 17 million over two years. So, uh, you know, a pretty pretty significant gap, uh, both in annual average value and in uh, in years for Lincecum and Heron. But if you actually look at their numbers from like the last year and then the last two years and the last three years. They're the same pitcher. I mean, not they don't do it the same way. Heron with much fewer, many fewer walks and, and fewer strikeouts. But you know, ERA, FIP, and XFIP across the board, uh, almost virtually identical in each of the last three years. Uh, Heron finished the season really strong. Um, you know, Lincecum's younger, so there's a point in his favor. And you know, maybe he was better at his peak, but. Uh, over the last few seasons, they're the same pitcher, and I don't know why someone would give up $40 million and a draft pick to get Lincecum if you could get Heron for $17 million over two with no draft pick. Well, if you're looking for explanations, it seems like it. Uh, you mentioned with regard to Josh Johnson that, you know, despite the fact that um, he did not necessarily pitch very well in 2013, he still, you know, he still has the name, right? There's a reputation associated with that name. And certainly uh, there's a reputation associated with Tim Lincecum. I perhaps not if you've you know followed a, uh, him very closely. I mean the last two or three years he's he's had troubles obviously, um, um, but he also has what two Cy Young awards as well, right? Right, but I mean shouldn't there be a reputation established with Dan Heron? Like I think the idea that Dan Heron stinks is kind of a prevalent one and one I don't totally understand. I mean they're basically the crowd is essentially projecting him to get the Joe Blanton contract. Dan Heron is. Uh, very clearly better than Joe Bland. I mean, you know, it's kind of the same idea of, you know, betting uh, a contract on a, you know, durable starter with a home run problem and hoping that he'll, you know, his peripherals will take over in his ERA. It will not be indicative of his actual results. But uh, Heron has a very long track record of being a, a really durable, quality, middle-of-the-rotation starting pitcher. Uh, you know, Lincecum's a little bit more of a wild card, and Lincecum's projected to get twice as much in guaranteed money, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, what do you what do you think is the reason? Uh, I don't know. Maybe people are enamored with strikeouts. Uh, you know, it seems like they're they're more willing to go for a high walk, high strikeout pitcher than a low walk, low strikeout pitcher. Uh, maybe the the strikeout guy seems more dominant. Uh, I think age is probably a factor, and I think what we've seen is the crowd is generally 
too harsh on older older players. Um, so I think there might be some undervaluing of, of Heron based on his age, but um, it could also just be a, a market inefficiency where maybe people haven't realized that Dan Heron and Tim Linscomb have been basically the same pitcher for the last three years. Do you think there's anything – and, of course, again, there are two different sort of fields here, um, although you're right, Linscomb does come out more favorably in both in terms of what the what, a re, what respondents would pay him. Um, do you think there's anything to the fact that – well, of course, the Giants have won the World Series – uh, which is part of it, and Lincecum has been on one team for that entire time. I've often thought about this, and maybe it's been borne out in the study already, that, uh, for example, it's easier for a player to uh, make the Hall of Fame uh, if he's played for one team his entire career, or at least is sort of attached to one team, which Lincecum has been, whereas Heron has been uh, has played for a number of teams. He was, what, he was a Cardinal, he was an A, he was a Diamondback, he's an Angel, now he's a National. Uh, that's right. at least five teams, and so you don't really have a uh, an image of Heron uh, in in your mind uh, playing for and succeeding over a long term uh, for for one team. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be possible that you know one team's fan base will inflate the value of a player that they've become attached to. Um, but at the same time, we didn't just poll Giants fans on this, right? Like this is the crowd as all of Fangraphs readers, not just. Uh, you know, the, the San Francisco portion of our readership, maybe they're disproportionately represented in, in the Lincecum and, and, uh, his results and maybe they've pushed the number up higher than it will actually be. But I think, you know, generally the, the noise is canceled out in these things. We get a lot of respondents, uh, and, you know, I think that in, in general these are pretty good projections. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I want to just discount it and say, oh, well, this is the San Francisco uh, side of the community just just overrating Tim Lincecum. It seems like, and you know, in talking with uh, people who who are looking at free agents this winter and kind of speculating about who they want their team to go after, there's a decent amount of excitement from a lot of people about Tim Lincecum and much much less about Dan Heron. Oh yeah, right. And I was not necessarily suggesting that it would be the San Francisco readers uh, sort of stuffing the, the the box the ballot boxes as it were, but the idea of just in in a an average fan's perception of Tim Lincecum as opposed to Dan Heron, the sort of the fact that he has played for and succeeded with just one team as opposed to multiple teams might might affect might because we say oh people are passing Dan Heron along because he's broken or something, whereas this one team which has been successful has really committed to Tim Lincecum. Right. It's just a theory. Yeah, it's a theory, right. Dave Cameron. Yeah. No, there could be something to this where we view Dan Heron as something less less uh, than he is because he seems to have been discarded by several organizations and maybe they know something we don't know. And maybe there's even something to this where teams keep getting rid of Dan Heron because they know that he's he's about to fall apart. Uh, at the same time, Dan Heron's been on the disabled list once in his career and it was a made-up injury because he wasn't pitching very well. So I think, you know, it's, it's hard to make the case that Dan Heron's broken when he's been maybe the least broken pitcher in baseball during the time he's been in the major leagues. Yeah. Okay. I, fine. That's fine. I'm not. Uh, I'm not angry. This 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 uh, conversation brought to you by fans of Dan Heron. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's get you off this. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dave Cameron. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, that's uh, that's managing uh, managing editor. <laughs> easy for me to say. Managing editor Dave Cameron. Managing editor of Fangraphs specifically. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.